This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome everybody. I'm so glad to be back here in front of the microphone. And tonight we're going to talk about heat stress. I came upon tonight's story when reading The Big Issue. I always buy it and I don't always read it, I must say, but I was riveted by the March issue of this year's Big Issue because of two terrific um, writers there uh, under the title of Hotting It Up. And they're with us in the studio. Jane and I are here in uh, Fitzroy, and we've got Greg Foister and Maggie Barron. So, Greg, how are you? Very good. Thank you. And Maggie, uh, Maggie how are you? Hi, Vivian. Well, thank you. Very welcome to come here. Uh, Maggie wanted to raise awareness about how heat waves can affect people with a psychiatric illness. So she's going to read us her story about her sister Katrina. It's extremely moving, and it illustrates exactly what can happen very quickly in a heat wave. Um, now, most of us know that climate change is intensifying heat waves and cyclones and everything, but I wonder how many of you realise that heat waves actually kill more people than cyclones, fires, bushfires and um, floods. Uh, Greg Foister has been re- researching that and he started his research on Australia Day. Greg, you describe people at a hot barbecue drinking diuretic beverages and pissing away every last drop of deference to the climate. Yes, yeah, so... I was looking at this study by Lucinda Coates, who's a professor at Macquarie University and has done a lot of research into natural disasters in Australia, particularly heat waves and how they cause more deaths than all the other natural disasters combined. And in in her uh, most recent study, which showed that uh, extreme heat has been responsible for more than 4,500 deaths in Australia since since 1900, she actually found that the, the day when more people died than any other day in the calendar year was Australia Day. <laughs> and the reason is, um, sorry, no, it was the, the, day, the day after Australia Day, January 27. And the reason is that heat waves often claim lives uh, after the heat has dissipated, and that's because people's uh, you know, bodies break down and, and the full effect is felt afterwards. But on, on Australia Day, people are obviously getting pissed in the sun, and we, we really don't have enough deference to the climate in well, Australia. 
made me think about the way the media behave. I don't think they're really very responsible because just around January we had an ambulance man. Do you remember, Jane? He came in here and he read out the list of ambulance cases they'd had in this heatwave and he said uh, one was an 80-year-old man who'd passed out on the golf course. Now, I think the media should have been telling a man to be like that. We sense, well, today is a really dangerous day for people, you know, don't go and do any big exertion like that. And I think the media um, just tell us a pretty story. What do you think? Well, we tend to get a mixed message about heatwaves. So if you look at, for example, media coverage of cyclones or bushfires, the, the, the text will be saying this is a disaster and the photo will, that accompanies the, that message um, conveys the same attitude that this is something to be avoided. So you have uh, an image of a raging hot fire or uh, winds whipping through a town, devastating houses, destroying um, the environment. But if you see media articles on heat waves, you've often got the, the text telling people to be cautious and wary, and then you've got this lovely photo of bikini-clad women splashing around water and having a good time. So it's, it's not exactly sending the same message. And the reason for that is that heat waves are largely uh, invisible natural disasters. It's very hard to depict a heat wave other than a little bit of melting asphalt, which isn't exactly a sexy media image. So they don't tend to... Uh, garner the same response from the media. Uh, and it, it's also really ha- hard to quantify how many people have died. And in, in previous heat waves, like, for example, in 1995 heat wave in Chicago, there was a question around, well, is there an adequate way of measuring how many people have died? Obviously, health researchers will say that there is. It's excess deaths. But a lot of people don't still buy that. They don't really understand that heat waves tend to affect um, elderly, vulnerable people. And those deaths should still be counted. They sh- you know, there's a there's a spike in deaths that has to be quantified, and it's more difficult than seeing somebody you know burnt alive or destroyed by a, a cyclone. Well, that's what we're here today to dramatise it and, and and make it less more visible. It is an invisible killer, but to make it visible, and Maggie's story is going to really illustrate that in a moment. I notice the pictures they show here, yeah, the bikini clad and the evening picnics, and even I, when I'm here or. I would go down to the water's edge if I could and I'm perfectly mobile but what about when I'm older or if I have a chronic illness or if I live far away from the sea that it just can't be bothered catching the train down to the the sea. Uh, There are a lot of people like that and you mentioned about some suburbs are sort of heat collectors more, you know, inner city perhaps suburbs are heat generators. You know, it's actually hotter to be there and some places to live are hotter. So Mm. what sort of... um, plans do you think say state government and local government need to put in place to help people like that who are actually trapped in the heat wave silent as it may be well when i was researching this story one problem that came up was that state governments and councils had plenty of plans for responding to the heat um, on a short-term basis so they'd send out information to people not that that information wasn't always read or accessible but they'd send it out but they weren't really planning on a long-term basis and um, upgrading housing stock or uh, making robust long-term national uh, heatwave response plans. It was all very short-term. What you were saying before about suburbs is actually really interesting because most people know that there's something called an urban heat island effect, which means that if you're in a city, uh, the concrete and all the dark... um, surfaces tend to trap in heat but there's also an effect where some suburbs have much higher land surface temperatures during heat waves simply because there's less vegetation Mm. and there's a correlation uh, according to a CSIRO study between those suburbs 
that have high land surface temperatures and low income, um, people with disabilities, older people. So essentially the people who are most vulnerable to heat waves live in the suburbs mm. that have the highest land surface temperatures. Mm. It's a really big problem that's going to exacerbate into the future. We're not really doing enough about it. Right. Well, if you've just tuned in, listeners, we're talking about heat waves uh, with a writer called Greg Foister who published in The Big Issue. Uh, Greg, you give credit to, you know, the patchwork of things that are happening in various states, but it seems very patchy. And I'd like to know what in your estimation, are the best interventions that a state government or a national government, if we're moving perhaps to a national alert plan or assistance scheme, you know, we have flood prevention and fire, bushfire prevention. Mm. Well, this heat wave prevention, um, what are the best elements of that? Well, heat waves tend to disproportionately affect uh, mo- minority groups of people, um, elderly people, people with disabilities, um, actually ethnic groups as well in outer suburbs and people on very low incomes. So any any plan to mitigate the effect of heat waves in terms of the number of deaths has to take that into account. And one of the best ways would be to retrofit uh, existing housing stock and to allow audits or, or to put in place audits of uh, people who have who are on low incomes and live in rental housing because mm. often it's people in rental housing who can't really afford to upgrade their homes. Mm. Um, and also looking at people who live in uh, boarding boarding houses. Oh. So uh, for this story, I actually had planned a 4,000-word four, story about heat waves, but there wasn't a really big heat wave in Melbourne during that period of research to, to cover it in real time, I suppose. But I wanted to really get into boarding houses, mm. and it's very, very hard. Um, because people aren't willing to talk about their their poor quality housing conditions. Mm. So if you're going to look at how do we stop the number of deaths mm. each year from heatwaves, we need to look at how do we treat vulnerable people, how mm. do we improve their, their quality of life and the houses that they live in. Well, I was very um, interested in the case you gave of someone who's living in council housing, but it was a high-rise, and um, his name was Bill McKenzie, the person you interviewed. I thought it was very enterprising. You really went around to a lot of different people, you know, scientific people and local people and all sorts of people to give a very wide coverage of this idea. It's not simple. Um, And Bill McKenzie, uh, he said he was feeling very anxious when they had these days of sort of accelerating, you know, day three, day four of a heat wave. It's probably not going to go going to go past the end of the week but he started getting very anxious why well he lives in a housing i don't want to say housing commission but i don't know the pc word um, for it public, uh, public housing yeah. older persons high-rise facility yeah. and the windows aren't allowed to be open past 12.5 centimeters in that in that place and when he sat through the heat wave in, in January last year, he recorded temperatures that were much higher than outside uh, and it didn't get below 30 degrees during uh, four days, including at 2am, 3am. So it's, it's well, well above the heat threshold that the health authorities would say is, is dangerous. Uh, and he's, this, this is a, an apartment complex that only has older people on low incomes. So it's particularly vulnerable for heat waves and for um, those people who are, are most affected by heat waves. So that needs retrofitting, doesn't it? With it does, and it's a it's it's one of so many yeah. apartment blocks or or social housing 
complexes that need retrofitting. Yeah. So the government's got a big task ahead of it. So it is happening in some places. I um, spoke with Mooney Valley Council about some of the uh, retrofitting they were planning on doing and some of the, one of the projects that they were running in a Flemington housing estate, but they weren't quite ready to... They didn't really have any data or anything to prove yeah. what they were doing. But there are things happening on the ground. There's been a big change, I think, um, in the last couple of years. It's just taking a while for it to come through. I still don't think the state government's doing quite enough, but it is happening. There, there are some changes on the ground. Right. Well, the ambulance guy certainly told us, you know, at the other end, at the pointy end at the hospital emergency, they're finding these people who've expired who need not have died or nearly died or had heart attacks because exactly of those living conditions. Okay, well, we um, we need to now talk to Maggie, but um, I'll come back to you, uh, Greg. Um, the aim of this radio sh- show is to talk to people about... Um, in the community who are finding climate solutions and I think your article has been very helpful in you know canvassing some of those solutions and um, we'll talk a bit later about helping people like Bill survive so now we have Maggie here I'm really grateful for her to come um, she um, t- is telling the story of her sister Katrina and it brings into close focus just how dangerous heat waves can be I was even surprised how that story evolved so would you Maggie Thanks, Just Vivian. Just the story. Thank you. Happy to share the story. On New Year's Day this year, I sat in my lounge room watching the weather report and my stomach clenched and my chest tightened. Predictions of 40-degree heat had a real visceral effect on me now because I know what can happen. My sister Katrina was a fun-loving and caring child, a good student and physically active. She went to a well-regarded school in Melbourne's leafy eastern suburbs before her first job at a major hospital. In her 20s, she went to university and studied social work before working in the field, helping young people at risk. When she was 24, she suffered a mental breakdown and was hospitalised many times over the next few years. And this was really a most awful time for those who loved her. Having a sister with mental illness is hard. Our older sister most eloquently described it as grieving the loss of the person you love every single time you see them. It took several years for her health to stabilise, but never to the point where she could work. During one hospital stay, she met Christopher. They formed a strong and loving relationship that would last the rest of their lives. Chris and Katrina's paranoia made living in shared accommodation challenging. Katrina badgered the mental health support people and through them convinced the Department of Housing to provide them with a small house in Melbourne's north, and there they built a stable home life. But because Katrina never shook the fear that they might be evicted at any time, she would never raise concerns about necessary repairs to the house. She ran the house and the budget, and she and Chris were always well presented and clean. Chris had been a chef in his youth, and they ate well. He did all the cooking because psychiatric medication caused my sister's hands to shake constantly. One Saturday in January last year, we went to the local park. I had a regular monthly visit with her and I noticed how slow she'd become and I suspected that the medication which propped up her mental health was also now sadly taking a physical toll. Her weight gain was obvious, but now her slow gait and tiredness were also visible and her feet were grossly swollen. Chris was always by her side. He too had gained a large amount of weight over the previous decade and had a nasty smoker's cough. The following week promised to be a scorcher, 40 degrees each day with a late change promised on the Friday night. I spoke to Katrina three times that week and our sister visited her on the Thursday night. She said Katrina appeared to be in good spirits, although she was clearly struggling with the high temperatures. Their small house had no air conditioning, just fans. 
One of Chris's brothers was an, is an electrician and he'd offered to install an air conditioner at no cost. But Katrina's anxiety about damaging the property and being evicted, plus concern about running costs, prevented her from accepting it. Anxiety is a really common problem with people who have a psychiatric disorder. Being a large person, she was unable to soak in a bath, but took many cold showers to try to keep cool. The side effects of her medication didn't help. Even in winter, she needed to drink two or more litres a day of water to stay hydrated. On Friday night, the cool change swept through. I called Katrina but got no answer. Assuming she and Chris were out the back enjoying some respite, I let them be for the evening and called again the following day but still got no answer. Katrina had a history of paranoia and perhaps she was cranky after the heat and it wasn't uncommon for her to take the phone off the hook for extended periods. I tried again on Sunday with nothing and my husband agreed to drop by the next day. But on Sunday night, Chris's father called... Chris and his sister had been, my sister, had been found dead in their home. They died on the Friday. Oh. I'm sorry, listeners, that's really, it's, this is a real story. I'm very sorry that we've actually had to put Maggie through this. Don't we? She's making her relive it. I think we might have time for a little bit of music. And then we'll come back to talking about heat waves because this is obviously a huge tragedy and we want to prevent it wherever we can. Listeners, if you've just tuned in, we're talking about heat waves and how they actually kill a lot of people. And it's a silent sort of insidious thing. It's not as dramatic as the bush fires or floods. And therefore, we don't have the services in place and the public's not really aware of it. And Maggie has been kindly reading her story. If you can look up, get the big issue, that magazine called The Big Issue for March. It's got this marvellous article about her sister, but it's a brave thing of her to come on air and talk about it because it's so real to her. And as I think with any families, when there's a death, you always think afterwards, what what really happened? What could we have done? And I'm thinking, uh, Greg, maybe you could talk about, you know, the sort of, um, do you know anything about psychiatric services that, or for elderly that could be put in place to perhaps go and visit people in their homes. Uh, is that is that a thing that, um, say, the hospitals do who know they've got patients who they're following? Or For for heat waves? Yeah, during a heat wave they think, well, this is going to be stressful for our, our population and uh, we could give them a phone call or go out. Do they, they have a service yeah, like that? Yeah, there are a, a range of services um, available. They're, they're not all through hospitals. They're often through... Uh, not-for-profit organisations, so mm-hmm. Kildanan, for example. Um, there's Sacred Heart in in St Kilda, um, Melbourne City Mission. I'm not sure how much they do. Um, uh, Western Co-Health does some. So basically they check up on um, elderly people or people who are at risk during heat waves yeah. and go and visit them or, or call them. If I can just chime in there too... If I can just chime in there too, that's a really good point that you make. But I think the challenge is, and I know that Katrina was visited several times during that week by her caregivers, Mm. but the challenge is is that she's living in a place that the temperature was never able to return below a level where her own body temperature could drop. Mm. So similar to Bill in his high-rise, my sister and Chris were also trapped in a house and couldn't get cool. So no amount of visitors is actually going to change that body chemistry. Mm. So really it has to be in a better housing situation or does. taken off to a motel for a week or something like that? I think it does. And as I say further in the article, that um, at the funeral, a couple of the social workers mentioned that they had cool respite facilities established and that the information was on the internet. 
My sister's never owned a mobile phone. They don't have a computer. And people with paranoia are not readily able no. to go and hang out with a whole bunch of strangers in a foreign place, no. even if there's a promise of being cool. Mm. In in the uh, older person's high-rise building where I met Bill McKenzie, he told me that in a previous heat waves they'd use the downstairs area to house people overnight when it was really hot and they'd put on air conditioning or something down there. But, I mean, it's a small space for a whole lot of people and not everyone's mm. willing to do that. Mm. So the problem, it, 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 these sorts of solutions don't fully solve the problem. You actually need to change the housing stock or improve it. Well, I think there's – I was caught in Sydney in a heat wave two years ago and I was really struggling up a hill. Suddenly I was just overheated. I could hardly take another step. And I noticed about three churches along the way. I was making my way to the State Library where it was really cool and air-conditioned. I spent the rest of the day there. But there are these three churches all locked up. And I thought, gosh, they, that's kind of a public space. They could be opened up and set up with cool drinks and, mm. you know, friendly people. I, I'm sort of a bit interested. I travelled to Cuba years ago and – they have much more, rather than the state doing everything for you, they have a thing of sort of citizens' action and they they have things on a block. So there's a, a person who's the head person on the block, the, the street block, and, and they would know who's who's elderly or who's just had an accident, who's broken their leg, and they sort of would be going round for things like that. They've, and Cuba's well known for its cyclone prevention. They have a lot of cyclones there and they get the people out, they evacuate them, they know who's at risk and they get them out and they're famous for that. And I don't think we're yet, Vivian, at that stage no. where folk who are at risk, particularly mm. psychiatrically ill, yeah. who are, are difficult folk to manage at the Definitely. best of times. That's right. But, you know, because you can't easily drop in and say, can you just go and live in a strange place now for a no. week? Mm. But we do, I, I think it's about better quality housing stock with automated climate control, that they don't have to make the decision about whether it's too hot and now turn it on and get a big bill because they're also incredibly Mm. poor people living on pensions and the way they think about the world is quite different from the way you and I think about the world. That's right, and they're absolutely panicked at the thought of a big bill and and being evicted and all of that. There was a report from um, VCOS, which is uh, Victorian uh, Council Council of Social Services, a few years ago that had some quotes from social service providers who'd visited people in rooming houses and the people who lived in these rooming houses were saying that their landlord wouldn't let them turn on the air conditioning air conditioning until it was over a certain temperature, like 31 or 32 degrees, because the landlord was paying the bill and that's outrageous. <laughs> outrageous and extraordinarily hard to confirm. So mm. I was trying to get all these people to speak up it's just so hard Mm. because people are scared Mm. and that's one of the issues that is raised in maggie's story as well you know there's a there might be a paranoia or there might be just a concern about losing a rental home you know you you feel quite powerless sometimes when you're in a rental home someone else pulls the strings and you might not get the help you need or the air conditioning that you need yeah And I think particularly, Greg, the folk that you talk about in rooming houses, folk with psychiatric disability, Mm. they have close to the least power in our society. So they're not going to put at risk the roof over their head Mm. and they'll try to just endure the heat. Mm. So this gives us lots of food for thought and I'm really glad that you've raised it in your big issue and I hope that um, people listening to this will perhaps... um, phone us up or phone the big issue and and say what they think i think it's as a society we should be able to do something it seems to me the low-hanging fruit really you know compared to climate change this is something we can do in our society to stop these um 
types of unnecessary deaths. So I think we've uh, um, just used up all our time, Jane, and we've got a, a, another interview coming up soon. Um, this uh, We're going to move now from heat waves to um, the cooling that we need in our climate, which might come from renewable energy. And... Um, so we've got a, someone, a new person who's done the interview today, which is James Curzon. He's our roving reporter. And he went up to Ballarat and heard Andrew Bray talking uh, from the Australian Wind Alliance. And I've just got a small interview here with Andrew Bray. And then we're going to talk to Stephen Bygrove, who's just walked in, um, who's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. And you are listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. Thanks, Jane. We're speaking to Andrew Bray today, who is the National Coordinator of the Australian Wind Alliance, which is a community-based not-for-profit um, advocating on behalf of the wind energy industry. Uh, Andrew recently uh, gave a series of briefings talks um, in Victoria. I had the pleasure of attending the Ballarat briefing. And, Andrew, if I could just um, highlight and pick up some of the points that um, you uh, made at the, at the briefing. Um, for a start, um, I was staggered at the impact that um, the delay delays and uncertainty around the RET um, have um, had the impact they've had on the wind energy industry. Could you give us a bit of an outline of just uh, what impact the uh, attacks on RET have had on funding of large-scale wind projects? Sure. Um, first, if I could, just before I kick off, James, um, if I could just clarify. Um, our members are sort of community members, so they're predominantly individuals, uh, farmers, wind workers, um, uh, local sort of small businesses, um, that kind of thing, com- some community groups. Uh, so in that sense, we don't advocate on behalf of the wind uh, wind energy industry. They're, um, you know, big enough and ugly enough to look after themselves. So, <laughs> <Well taken>. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, um, so, you know, we sort of see that there are some, some quite major... Um, <clears throat> quite major benefits uh, to be had by communities uh, in, in wind districts and, and that's uh, that's the sort of thing that we're interested in seeing. So, um, but to answer your question, yeah, in, in 2013, the, um, the renew- there was around $2 billion worth of investment in renewable energy in Australia. Um, so, you know, that, that's a, a really huge amount of money and given that... Um, a really large proportion of that uh, sort of went out to, to regional Australia uh, and was spent in, you know, areas like southwest Victoria or um, sort of north, uh, or sort of central South Australia, um, in, you know, New South Wales as well. Um, that's really important uh, money for those, those local economies. Um, and it also delivered, you know, significantly, significant boosts in the amount of renewable energy that, uh, that Australia has as part of its mix. So, um, so, you know, that was a renewable energy target when it was working. Um, but, um, but after that, um, probably from the point where it became clear that the, um, that the next government was going to be uh, led by Tony Abbott, um, the markets were, you know, it was pretty clear to anyone looking on that, um, that theirs wasn't a government that was going to be favourable to renewable energy. Uh, and that uh, that got the markets sort of offside. Uh, you know, financiers didn't want to uh, put out large, uh, sign large contracts to new wind farms if they knew that the government was um, was looking to take the axe to renewable energy once they got in. So what we ended up seeing was in 2014 um, that two billion dollar 
um, build in 2013 uh, dropped something like 88 percent so it just fell off a cliff really yeah um, to the point where it was only about 200 million in 2014 uh, and of that uh, there was probably only one wind farm actually got up that year and that was um, a three turbine wind, wind farm so you know there was almost no activity at all for wind energy that year. Going on from that is that uh, the Minister for the Environment has recently announced that a RET agreement is imminent. Um, what do you think that in the interim, in the here and now, is a reduced RET target better than the current situation of uncertainty? Certainly the industry is, is looking to get some sort of deal and some sort of resolution you know, out of this, what's it really an impasse, and it, that's probably the best that they can hope for, but it, it really is um, you know, a terrible situation that the government has, has sort of brought on. You know, there's no good options left, really. Um, the government certainly didn't, you know, they didn't go to the election being square with the Australian people that, that a cut to renewable energy was what they were after. Um, as I said, it was something that was clear to, to the markets and to the industry, but in terms of a wider conversation with the Australian public, they certainly didn't um, make clear they were planning to cut the amount of renewable energy that, that uh, they've, they've ended up doing. Um, uh, but also they've, they've been aware that um, all they needed to do was create the uncertainty in the investment environment uh, to stop that kind of, to stop the investment going on. Um, so really they've been holding a gun to the head of, a, of the renewable energy industry, uh, knowing that they can hold out for as long as they want and, um, and nothing will get built. So... That's obviously making the industry, um, you know, keener to, to bring it to a to to an end and um, to to make some concessions far beyond what what they would uh, what they would want to if they wanted to see a, a thriving industry. Moving on from that is um, one of the positives in your briefings was the um, uh, things that were happening at the state level, the ACT and uh, wind energy auctions and so on. Could you talk a little bit about um, what's happening in the states and the potential there for some initiatives at the state level? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is, is with the sort of, you know, vacuum of leadership at a federal level, um, other governments are, uh, are stepping in uh, and also communities are stepping in as well. Um, for instance, we've, we've only just heard that... Uh, in New South Wales, a number of uh, grants have been given out to community energy groups. Um, a lot of them are for solar projects. Um, so, you know, in that sense, there's a sort of community energy um, momentum going as well. Um, but certainly in the ACT, they'd be the standout performers uh, on this. They, they held a, an auction for new wind energy um, uh, earlier this, well, late last year, and they've announced it early this year. Uh, and and through that process, they've contracted three new wind farms to go ahead, uh, two in Victoria and one in South Australia. Um, South Australian one's 100 megawatts at a place called Jamestown. Uh, there's one, another large one near Ararat, and and a third one, a smaller one near Canoa Bridge, which is just sort of. Um, uh, west of Bendigo. Um, so that's, you know, that's the best news that there's been on the wind energy front for some time. 
um, those projects uh, are now likely to go ahead and, and they're just um, really kicking into gear now that they've had the, um, that support from the ACT government uh, set out. To build a new wind farm now is the cheapest way of building new power in Australia. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the outcome of the ACT auctions. Lots of grounds for optimism there. Absolutely. Another um, highlight of your talk was the Get Up video um, uh, exhorting Tony Abbott to not cut the RET. Um, can you tell us about the background to that and its effectiveness as a lobbying tool? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that was a very interesting, um, interesting project, that. Um, so it, it featured um, uh, a farmer... Um, it was that, well, the, the video we saw was a two and a half minute version. I think there was a thirty second for the TV size version as well. Um, yeah, and I'd recommend people to go and um, look it up on on YouTube. Um, uh, but it featured a, a farmer, um, Charlie Pearl from New South Wales, and he's he's one of our organisers up um, up there just north of Goulburn. And um, and yeah, to I mean his story is is. You know, one that's that's repeated all over, um, all over Australia with uh, existing wind farms. Uh, you know, he talks about being a, a I think it's a fourth generation sheep farmer, um, and in the grip of the drought um, in the first decade of this century, he um, uh, he was approached by a wind company to put uh, some turbines on his land. Um, and yeah, for him, it's really been the difference between hanging on to the farm and, and um, having to let it go because the the economics just went through the floor. Um, and yeah, I, there's certainly many of our members who who could vouch, who could tell that exact same story about um, about their farms as well. Uh, so it's a great story there, but it also features a number of um, uh, local identities from Goulburn, uh, lots of small business owners. Um, uh, the mayor, uh, Jeff Kettle, uh, they, um, they're all talking about the importance of uh, renewable energy and wind energy in particular for, uh, for their region and they're able to talk about the sort of benefits that it's brought for, um, you know, one of them's a contractor, contracting firm, uh, another one's a civil engineering or sort of construction firm. Uh, there's a hotel owner there as well. Uh, so really, it's you know the effects of new wind farms on local economies are really quite profound and very important for the economic fabric of those, uh, smaller towns. The Australian Wind Alliance um, obviously emphasises the job creation in rural and regional Australia, and it come from renewable technologies and wind turbines. It's sort of surprising that it doesn't get more recognition and more support. So I'm wondering, you know, in your lobbying efforts when you speak to uh, politicians, um, what response do you get? You know, when you point out the job creation that's that's happening. Oh, look, I think um, you know some politicians. I think are, are a little surprised. Um, they say, oh, yeah, I didn't even realise that." You know, um, I mean, that's where the importance of, of having having a wide variety of voices talking to politicians comes in. You know, if, if they can have a, a small business owner sitting in their office, letting them know about the people they've been able to employ on such and such a job. Uh, that's when the messages really drive home. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that is that is one of the, the strong suits, I think, uh, for, for wind energy. 
uh, particularly with regional politicians. And wind power at the moment, as, as the cheapest option uh, of large-scale power, is, you know, it has to be part of that mix. And, uh, you know, the longer that uh, we dilly-dally around with, with a renewable energy target that's not effective, uh, the longer it takes us to get those kind of transitions happening. Yep, absolutely. Look, um, thank you so much, Andrew. We're out of time. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure, James. Thanks very much. Okay, You've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions and we've been talking to Andrew Bray of the Australian Wind Alliance. Thank you, James. That's very nice to have you reporting for us. Our last guest is Stephen Bygrave. So we've gone from heat waves to wind alliance to now uh, more the big picture, the policy level. And Stephen Bygrave is the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Now, we've just heard from Andrew Bray about how uncertainty around the RET is killing business. Stephen, can you bring us up to date with what's on the table between the main players about the RET? Yes, look, it certainly is killing business, Vivian. Look, the, the longer this continues, the, the more destabilising it is for the industry. The renewable energy industry is really on the ropes now in terms of the investment which has fallen in this country since the RET review was announced. And, uh, you know, the most recent offer, I think, from Bill Shorten, um, Labor uh, um, leader, is that uh, it's an offer of about 335 uh, 33,500 uh, gigawatt hours um, and that's supported by the Clean Energy Council and that compares to what McFarlane and the government's offering which is about 32,000 gigawatt hours. So I think we're getting close but look it's it's certainly far lower than the original target of 41,000 gigawatt hours. That target was put in place to provide certainty for industry, certainty to allow the renewable energy industry to invest in long-term investments around renewables, but also in certainty for retailers who also needed to be able to understand their future liability. So, look, the reason why targets are locked in and the percentage figures locked in is for good reason, for good financial reason, to allow the various stakeholders involved to plan and invest for renewable energy into the future. Um, you know, electricity demand has gone down, and this is the reason why government is is saying that the RET review uh, should occur. But look, it never occurred when electricity demand went up. So, uh, you know, the the target was never increased uh, in in the past uh, fifteen years when electricity demand did go up. So, look, my view is the government should be consistent. Um, if reviews are going to be called um, of this nature, that, that it should be consistently called whether electricity demand goes up or down. Uh, this is all about protecting the three big energy retailers whose uh, profits are suffering because they're not moving with the times and the times are actually about renewable energy investment, not about coal and gas, uh, which are fuels of the past. Well, how obvious is it to you that there is lobbying from the fossil fuel industry um, to both coalition and Labor people who are in these tense negotiations? And I would like to know, could you explain what would be the gain to those fossil fuel industry, um, companies of a lower target being locked in? Look, what's to gain? Look, firstly, there is definitely lobbying going on. AGL and Origin and uh, the other retail have been um, very clear in, in making their statements around the RET and the target level it should be at. They all made submissions uh, to the previous Warburton review and their positions were made very clear. The, the issue with these retailers is they have 
portfolios which cover fossil fuels so that investments in renewables essentially erode the profits they're making from those fossil fuel-powered assets, which are, as I mentioned, they're old, they're dirty, they're some of the most inefficient power generation facilities in the world, which includes developing countries. So the power generation assets which Australia has uh, rank lower than some power generation assets in developing countries. So these assets are old. Uh, They're trying to squeeze whatever remaining profits they can out of these assets. These assets should be retired, uh, as was proposed under the previous Clean Energy Future Package, where generation, old generation facilities which are inefficient, dirty, uh, should be retired, and they need to be investing in renewables. So these uh, power generators, they need to move with the times, and um, they're holding on for dear life, just like uh, many old industries held on for dear life. We saw that with the Kodak moment uh, in, in digital uh, photography. We've seen it with the tobacco industry. This is just another repeat of history. Okay, I'll just put in there, uh, listeners, you might like to go to a rally on Thursday. I happen to know there's a rally at uh, the Parliament, Victorian Parliament, at 12.30, and it's about Hazelwood, uh, you know, closing down Hazelwood and changing over to green jobs in that uh, Latrobe Valley. So that's just a, a bit of a heads up about next Thursday. Um, Stephen, uh, we're speaking to Stephen Bygraves. He's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, and we're talking about the big picture stuff regarding this transition to the clean energy future. Um, Stephen, the energy white paper came out last week and it called for something like this, uh, a technology neutral approach to developing future energy, energy sources for electricity. Now, what does that mean? Look, firstly, Vivian, the energy white paper shouldn't even be called a white paper. It should be called a black paper because it's really all about dirty uh Uh, fossil fuels. It it hardly mentions climate change. It's certainly not what a white paper should be, which is all about setting the future strategic vision for the energy sector in Australia. It's basically the same old story of supporting old, dirty industries, which I've already talked about. The energy white paper is an opportunity or, or should be an opportunity to position Australia for the future for the enormous uh, business opportunities which will come from the clean energy revolution, which is occurring around the world as we speak. Uh, It's not just happening in Australia, it's happening uh, around the world. And the, the changes that we're seeing are fast, they're dynamic, and Australia is acting very slowly and uh, inflexibly without um, and, and not seizing the opportunities um, uh, f- from, from, from this revolution. Um, so, so, look, the, the energy white paper is actually an embarrassment for this country. Um, it does not position us well for the future. Uh, it, it does not uh, recognise the, the business opportunities which are coming, as I mentioned, and it really is, in my view, putting some of the final nails in the coffin of, uh, of, of the energy sector and the renewable energy sector in Australia and, and, and the climate framework that we had only 18 months ago. When Tony Abbott came into power, we had seven key institutions – uh, we had the Climate Change Authority, the Clean Energy Regulator, the Climate Change Commission, ARENA, the Clean Energy, um, the, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Renewable Energy Target. Many of those institutions have either been disbanded, disfu- defunded or are under threat. And uh, the Energy White Paper announces um, certainly threatens the, the Clean Energy Future, uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA. 
you know, talks about their abolition, and though those are two critical uh, institutions in this country which mm. need to be protected. Okay. It's, it's, it always strikes me as odd because it's sort of anti-business, and I don't know why I'm here sort of going rah, rah, rah for the renewable energy business. That's also big business, but this is a Liberal government. They should be for business, promoting it. That's exactly right. And, and you know, a coalition government uh, should be pro-market-based mechanisms such as a carbon price. Let the market decide, uh, s- set a target, set a uh, emission reduction target and let the market respond, which was always why, in fact, uh, th- you know, a carbon price was pushed um, and certainly why many in the coalition party still support a price mm. on carbon a- and a market-based mechanism. Rather than increase regulation, which is in fact where we may be heading if if Australia does not uh, toe the line and if the world can't get to an agreement in Paris uh, around a, a an effective climate change agreement internationally, then you can only see a world where there's increased regulation rather than actually letting the market and, and business respond to a market-based signal. Okay, well, let's talk about Paris. Um, two of the people who have been on this program before, George Monbiot and George Marshall, um, have put out a little manifesto and they're hoping for an agreement about something about the global budget. Now, we've heard about this, you know, carbon budget, uh, about only mining so much coal and oil and gas. But I think if you give politicians a budget, they'll just spend it. And I'd like to tell you my idea. Um, I'd like Paris to say, we're going to make the fossil fuel trade illegal and um, we're going to prevent ecocide because it's that dire you know we're just at that point we're going to make it illegal like we abolished the slave trade and everybody fell into place what do you think should happen at paris look that that's not such a radical idea we've even got world leaders such as the head of the oecd uh calling for um you know saying that fossil fuels will not be burnt uh we have the uh, lead negotiator for the United States, Todd Stern, also saying that uh, by 2050 we won't be burning coal. So, so, so many world leaders are actually saying that uh, fossil fuels are, are a thing of the past, that they won't be being burnt in 30, 40, 50 years' time. But coming back to your comment about a, a carbon budget, look, the, the world leaders are calling for uh, what they describe as a safe level of climate change of two degrees Celsius increase uh, in, in temperatures by 2100. It's the view of beyond zero emissions and certainly my personal view that two degrees is too high. Um, that's not a safe level of climate change. Uh, we've already experienced 0.8 degrees Celsius uh, increase in temperatures and we can mm. see the 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 ravage that is being uh, you know the the wreck that's coming Arctic from even that Antarctic shelves falling off yeah and you've just had uh, you've just had two speakers talk, talking about heat waves so we've had heat waves uh, ice melting uh, Antarctic ice sheet melting we've seen uh, floods uh, bushfires uh, droughts um, these these impacts of only 0.8 degrees Celsius show us and I think the scientific community that uh, two degrees Celsius by 2100 is far too high. Um, that and, and even the World Bank is saying that a business as usual scenario means we're heading for more like four degrees. We've had the IEA pointing out it could be even as 5.8 degrees Celsius by 2100. And look, the World Bank has stated very, very clearly that a world 
which is four degrees warmer in 2100, uh, will not support the current stable, civilised society that we currently enjoy. Okay. Well, look, a zero emissions goal must be in the Paris deal on climate change, according to your recent article in Renew Economy. Um, listeners, you should all get Renew Economy. It's an online journal and we have many, many people uh, really writing for that who we interview. Um, how much momentum is behind this idea of a zero emissions goal? There's certainly a lot of momentum, uh, Vivian, and uh, I've written about this briefly in the Renew Economy article. Um, there's over 120 countries which are supporting uh, such a goal. Um, the OECD held a recent workshop in March in, in Paris uh, where there were 34 countries and, and negotiators and organisations also talking about a zero emissions goal. I'm travelling overseas in this week and I'm meeting with the OECD, the IEA, the European Commission, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and we're also holding a seminar with other zero carbon uh, NGOs in London on the 28th of April where we'll have Zero Carbon Britain. We've got Track Zero, an NGO based in London, whose leader, Fahina Yaman, uh, she is uh, behind drafting a lot of the text on a zero emissions goal in the actual text for the International Climate Change Agreement to be deliberated in Paris at the end of this year. So, look, things are definitely moving, um, and this follows the Lima conference in December where um, there was a range of discussion around a zero emissions goal. So the, the issue, though, becomes what is zero emissions? Um, and there's a lot of language around net zero emissions, um, which, which means for some people that you can still burn fossil fuels and you can use carbon capture and storage to, to sequester those emissions. It's our view that um, a zero emissions goal is a pure zero emissions goal. It uh, means going beyond zero emissions. It means, as our name of our yeah. organisation suggests, it's about sequestering the, the existing um, – well, certainly it's about – it means – uh, stopping burning fossil fuels right now. It means moving to clean energy sources immediately and transport sources. And it also means sequestering the existing uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which are already in the atmosphere, which will mm. take us back to zero degrees Celsius increase, which is a net. You know, it, it, it's not... It's actually a pure zero emissions goal. Okay. Well, there's such a lot there, and it's very good that you're going to these international for a good luck to you there to Thanks get your in. word in. And it's good that these other organisations in other countries are doing as Beyond Zero has done, you know, trying to create a blueprint. This is how you would do it. It's not – first it has to be feasible, and then it becomes inevitable, you know, that phrase. So We, we are pretty unique, though, and, and this is why – the, the, the organisations in Europe are very keen to host us because beyond zero emissions, as far as we're aware, it's the only organisation around the world which has looked at every sector in the economy with detailed, fully-costed technical plans. There's been a range of other very, very, very good work at a high level around um, you know, deep decarbonisation uh, and also you know, high-level national plans. But I think our work really uh, is, is incredibly valuable and can be used by other countries as a blueprint, as you say, by taking that sector-by-sector sector approach. Okay. Well, look, imagine the fossil fuel trade does become illegal, my radical plan. How could those companies that are now trading fossil fuels, how could they put their expertise, their knowledge, their workforce behind a goal of zero emissions? Just tell us what that would look like in Australia. Look, uh, 
you know, business people have incredible skills and this is why it can be very frustrating working in this field where we have um, some businesses and companies holding on to old business models where there's clearly changes afoot uh, driven by, by both economic uh, and social and environmental factors. So, uh, you know, companies and businesses offer in, incredible innovation um, potential, incredible financial management potential, in, incredible business nows and sales and marketing uh, nows, which um, we need. We need for this transition and uh, we need all the skills and all the people and all of the resources we can harness to make this transition. This isn't going to be easy. No one says this is going to be easy, but we need to be able to utilise the skills of these entrepreneurs and these innovators to to take the next steps required to transition us uh, to the to the economy and the world that we all need if we're going to have uh, a human species that's thriving and surviving in a hundred years time. Mm. But uh, I mean, in each sector, what would it look like? You know, we have a lot of people talking about e- uh, electric vehicles now. We're talking about battery technology. Um, I, I would like to see some sort of coordinated thing. We, we're following some of the beyond zero work, you know, in each sector that these the leaders in those sectors get on with a coordinated, you know, project to decarbonise really rapidly. It has to be well, like that. Well, that's exactly what we're doing, Vivian. So on high-speed rail, we, we've been talking to business uh, businesses and companies about how that can happen in Australia. We've, we've talked to a range of countries which have this technology up and running in their countries, in their respective nations, and, and who can share that technology. We've got people from the finance sector who are, who are also available and, and keen to make this happen. We've got politicians of, of all colours, actually, who want high-speed rail to happen. On electric vehicles, we've got the, the key manufacturers and, and new models and makes and models coming out all the time on electric vehicles. So we have businesses already um, there and ready. Uh, what we do need, though, is the market signals and the policy drivers to make this transition occur quickly, rapidly and smoothly with minimal economic disruption. On the solar front and on the energy front, we all know that the companies and the businesses exist today, solar thermal, solar PV, wind, hydro, uh, pumped storage hydro, all of these technologies can be taken off the shelf and implemented right now. Mm. Uh, On land use, we've identified in our land use report all the initiatives that can be taken to to move our ag ag sector to zero emissions. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is actually utilising existing technologies and working with those innovators to make this happen. Great. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Stephen Bygrave, who's just off now overseas, and we hope he'll report back to us when he comes back about all those um, meetings he goes and the strength to you, Stephen, in those. I can imagine be very, you'd have to be very patient in some of those meetings, but and um, you know maintain your vision. Um, thanks, Vivian. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we, we've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Um, thanks tonight to Greg Foister, Maggie Barron. Andrew Bray and Stephen Bygrave. The team today has been Jane, Teddy, Glenn, Genevieve, Roger, Miwa and our guest reporter James Curzon.